Father, we do thank you for your word to us. Father, we thank you that you are full of grace and mercy, grace abounding even to the chief of sinners. Father, we thank you for this grace that forgives us, that transforms us, that promises us eternal glory in your presence in the new creation. Father, we pray that this message of grace would go forth today, that it would be driven into our hearts, that we may be shaped and transformed and made more like Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that you would do these things in your power for our good. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. First of all, I want to say that uh, I appreciate uh, your prayers as I continue to recover from my torn Achilles tendon. Uh, I knew this would happen, but uh, I have run out of bruised heel jokes long before I fully recovered. So (laughs) when the jokes run out before the injury recovers, heals, uh, that's never a great thing. But anyway, I do appreciate your prayers very much. And uh, it's, it's, it's been very encouraging to me, and I am getting better, so hopefully I'll be back on my feet here pretty soon. Uh, this morning we've got a sermon that's really going to take us back to basics. Sometimes it's really good to go back to basics. Think about the start of a new school year. A lot of times teachers will take their students who've been off for the summer back to basics. And uh, you can think of this sermon uh, along those lines. We're going back to basics. The story that we read here in Luke chapter 7 is very simple, really. Uh, This is uh, a very simple story. The parable that it includes is very simple. It is probably the simplest of all the parables Jesus told. Some of the parables of Jesus can be hard to understand, not this one. This story shows us the gospel in all of its beautiful simplicity and power. Sometimes the question is, asked, is the gospel found in the gospels? Is the gospel in the gospels? And if so, how? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels, are very different from Paul's letters. We know uh, that when Paul explains the gospel, which he does in in all of his letters, of course, in one way or another, when Paul explains the gospel, it's, it's laid out there for us. But when Paul explains the gospel, he uses a lot of big words to do so. He uses words like justification or predestination or like we talked about last week, principalities and powers. He's got a big vocabulary and it's often sophisticated. Even the Apostle Peter admitted that Paul was often hard to understand. With the gospel, certainly there are many things in the gospels that are, that are complex, that can be difficult to understand, but the gospels usually present the gospel to us in small stories like this one that we have read in Luke chapter 7. It's very, very simple. Of course, we need both. We need Paul's theologically sophisticated explanation, but we also need the elegant simplicity of gospel narratives like this one that we've read this morning. The gospel is most definitely found in the gospels, and this story at the end of Luke 7 is a perfect model of a gospel narrative, a gospel story. This is a story of amazing grace and comfort. If you let this story wash over you, it's incredibly encouraging. It's a story that can bring peace and joy. If your conscience bothers you, if your conscience is nagging you because of things you've done, if you find yourself struggling to feel loved, uh, if you find yourself struggling with assurance of salvation, this story is for you. If you have ever wondered, how could God love me after all the things I've done? Well, this story is going to answer those 
doubts. Because this story pushes back hard against our feelings of shame and guilt. It's a story of forgiveness and transformation. Now, what happens here? We find here Jesus at the table. We find Jesus at the table enjoying a meal. That's a pretty common occurrence in Luke's gospel. You've heard me talk about this before, how you can eat your way through Luke's gospel almost because there's so many meals in it, just kind of one meal after another. He's constantly having feasts uh, in all the gospels, but particularly in Luke's gospel, he moves from feast to feast. In fact, in Luke's gospel, almost all the really big events happen at the table in the context of a meal. And obviously this story is one of them. It's interesting to compare this story with what happened a couple chapters earlier back in Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus was invited to the home of a notorious sinner, the tax collector Levi. Here in Luke 7, he is invited to the home of the supposedly righteous, one of the religious leaders, a Pharisee named Simon. So you got Levi and Simon both hosting Jesus, but it's radically different. In Levi's house, sinners are welcome. Sinners are welcome to come and meet Jesus. In Simon's house, well, not so much. Levi wants to be a disciple of Jesus. He wants to be a follower of Jesus. He becomes one of the apostles. He wants others to become disciples of Jesus, so he invites them in. Simon has a very different agenda in hosting Jesus, as we're going to see here in just a moment. This story opens, we've got Jesus in Simon's house, sitting at the table to eat with Simon. Since Jesus was known as a teacher, and since Simon was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a teacher himself, this is probably much more than just a casual dinner party. It's more like you've got Simon, this religious leader, this teacher who has invited Jesus, this rabbi, into his home. Why is he there? This is most likely for theological discussion. Uh, this is what would sometimes be called a symposium, a, gather, a gathering for dinner and for discussion. And most likely, the gathering was for men only. Verse 37, we are told about a woman who comes in. She is identified as a woman of the city. She's identified as a sinner, and she crashes their dinner party. She came in because she knew Jesus was there, and she wanted to get close to Jesus. She knows she has a need. She believes Jesus can meet that need. She's called a woman of the city and a sinner. Almost certainly this woman is a prostitute. She's a harlot. She's a whore. And so when she enters the house, no doubt it immediately scandalized many who were there. They would wonder, what is a woman like this doing in the house of a Pharisee like Simon? She doesn't belong here. That's what they would be thinking. This would be like a prostitute showing up at a presbytery meeting. It just, it's out of place. What has she come to do? Well, we immediately find out she's got an alabaster flask of fragrant oil. This would have been a very expensive oil. Uh, oils like this are mentioned in the Song of Solomon for use in marriage, or perhaps in her case, used in her line of work, if you catch my drift. She throws herself at Jesus' feet, weeping, and she begins to wash his feet with her tears and then wipe his feet with her hair and even kiss his feet as she anoints his feet with this expensive flask of oil. Now we might wonder, what is the meaning of this? What is she doing? What does an action like this communicate? 
It's interesting, there is another incident where Jesus is anointed by a woman. Uh, and we're told this, you can find this in John chapter 12. Uh, he is anointed by a woman in preparation for his death and burials. We're actually told that in John chapter 12. But that happens during the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. So it makes sense. Jesus has been talking about his death. This woman believes he's going to die. And so she anoints him in preparation for his death, for his burial. This is not that. It, it's, it's too early in the gospel for that. What is this woman doing? This is an extravagant act of worship and devotion. She is honoring Jesus the best way she knows how. This is a sign of her humility and her devotion before the one she is trusting to bring her salvation. There is this man, Jesus. She has heard he can take away guilt and shame. And she wants that blessing. She wants her guilt and shame taken away. So she comes to Jesus and she worships, worships Jesus as her Savior. In fact, the most common word for worship we have in the New Testament literally means to bow before or to prostrate oneself. That's what she's doing. This is an act of worship. Commentators sometimes ask, they sometimes speculate, is there anything sexual going on in what she does here? And I think the answer to that question is no. In fact, it's the furthest thing from that. The answer is no, except insofar as what she does symbolizes the reality that she wants to have Jesus as her spiritual husband. She wants to be part of his true bride, the church. It's a lot like the woman at the well in John chapter 4 who becomes symbolically a part of Jesus' bride. She's had six husbands. Jesus will be the seventh, as it were, not a husband in the same way the others were, in a different kind of way, but he's the husband to his bride, the church. She's being incorporated into the church. And that's what you have here. Symbolically, spiritually, you could say, yes, that's what this is. This is a woman whose life has been full of illicit and no doubt disastrous relationships with men. And now she has found a man who will truly love her, who will serve her, a man who will take care of her, who will provide for her and protect her. She has found a man who will be her savior. In washing Jesus' feet, she has only done what Simon should have done. Even if Simon himself did not do it, he should have made sure that this was done when Jesus came into his house as a guest. Think about this. In those days, people walked uh, in, in sandals, of course. They walked in, uh, in, in, in roads that were very dusty, very dirty, very dirty streets full of dung and whatnot. Your feet would get very filthy. And so it would be customary if you were a guest in someone's home as you come in to have your feet washed. The fact that Simon has not done this means that he was not inviting Jesus into his house to honor Jesus. In fact, he's really insulted Jesus by refusing to make sure that Jesus got his feet washed in his home. It's an insult to Jesus. Shows you a contrast between the woman and Simon that will continue to develop throughout the story. When the woman honors Jesus in this way, Simon is obviously disgusted by what is happening. See, by this point, even though we're still fairly early in the ministry of Jesus, fairly early in Luke's gospel, by this point, the Pharisees have already started to oppose Jesus as a rival. They've heard Jesus preach. They've seen him do miracles. 
They know about his kingdom program now, what Jesus' agenda is, and they can see that Jesus' kingdom program threatens their status as the elite, as the leaders in Israel, the religious leadership in Israel. In fact, in the preceding verses in Luke 7, just before the part that we read, we find that the Pharisees, among others in the Jewish leadership, have accused Jesus of eating and drinking with sinners. They've accused Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton, which carried with it the possibility of the death penalty according to the Torah. That's what they're saying. He's worthy of death. They accuse Jesus of befriending tax collectors and sinners, sinners like this woman. He's a man who befriends tax collectors and prostitutes. He can't be the Messiah. There's no way. A Messiah would come and do things the way we're doing them. But Simon doesn't just despise Jesus. Simon despises this woman as well. He puts the woman in an altogether different category than himself. He puts her in the category of sinner, and he puts himself in the category of righteous. And so he wants nothing to do with her. In his mind, I'm righteous, she's a sinner, we can have nothing to do with each other, and he thinks Jesus should have nothing to do with her as well. Simon figures that if Jesus is allowing this woman to touch him and to serve him and to honor him in this way, then ah, Jesus must not be anyone special. Jesus obviously doesn't know who this woman is or what kind of woman she is. Verse 39 tells us that this was uh, Simon's thought process. He was thinking to himself about this. Simon has a kind of inner dialogue. And he thinks to himself, if this man were a prophet, like other people are saying, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is, for she is a sinner. The irony, of course, is at the very moment that Simon is concluding Jesus cannot be a prophet because he doesn't know who this woman is, Jesus proves he is a prophet because he can read Simon's thoughts. He knows Simon's heart. No doubt he knows the heart of this woman as well, but he also knows Simon's heart. And so he answers Simon's unspoken accusation. And in doing so, he exposes, as he exposes what Simon has been thinking, he really confronts Simon's self-righteousness. And he does this by telling a parable, and the parable is very straightforward. Just as there are three characters in this story, Jesus, Simon, and the woman, there are three characters in the parable. So the parable is going to match what is happening in the story. The parable is really held up as a mirror to show the meaning of this event at Simon's house. You want to understand what's happening at Simon's house, at the table with this woman, all of that, what's going on here? Look at this parable. It's going to explain it to you. Luke's telling a story about Jesus, Simon, and the woman. Jesus tells a story about the story Luke is telling about Jesus, Simon, and the woman. That's really what this is about. So here's the story, and I bet you can figure out who is who in the story. In fact, again, I would say this story is so simple, it's almost an insult to Simon's intelligence. It's like Simon has insulted Jesus by refusing to have his feet washed when he comes into his home. It's almost as if Jesus says, okay, Simon, you think you're this great teacher. You think you know so much. You think you're righteous. Let me take you back to basics. I'm going to explain to you in the simplest possible way way with the simplest possible story why you're wrong and here it goes there was a creditor who had two debtors one owed him 500 denarii the other owed him 50 denarii so one owes 10 times more than the, than the other you could say one's a, a small debt or re, it would seem to be a reasonable debt the other has a massive debt 
But the point is, neither could repay the debt. And so in the story, the creditor graciously, freely, and mercifully forgave them both. He canceled their debts. He said, you don't owe anything. You're you're free and clear. Your debts have been canceled. Jesus tells this story, and then he asks Simon a pointed question. He says, which one of these two, the two who have had their debts canceled, which one of these two will love the creditor more? Which one of these two will love the creditor who canceled their debts more? And Simon says, I suppose it's the one who was forgiven more. That's obvious. Somebody forgives you five bucks, that's great. You can be thankful for that. Somebody forgives you five zillion dollars, well, then that's a huge deal. That's a much bigger deal. You're much more grateful for that. You're going to love the one who has forgiven you much more. Simon's right about that. Jesus affirms that. He says, you've judged rightly. What's happening here? What is this about? Well, think of it this way. You know how you get a statement of your debts every month. Maybe you get it in the mail or you get it online. You get a statement of your debts every month. You get a statement that tells, tells you what you owe the bank on your mortgage. Uh, you get a statement that tells you every month what you owe the credit card company. Debts here in the story, Jesus tells, debts obviously stands in for sins, just like in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. Debts here stands in for sins. Okay, you get a statement of debts every month, people you owe. Think about this. Imagine if Jesus sent you a statement every month of your debts to him. Imagine if you got a bill every month that recorded every sin you've committed, a bill that says, this is what you owe. This is, what you're, this is your liability. What would you do with that bill? Could you pay it off? No, there's no way. You'd have to declare bankruptcy right away. And that's really the point of this parable. It's to show we all stand in need of forgiveness. We all have bills we can't pay, debts we can't cover. This is why in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, in, it's in, you got a version of it in Luke, and it's the Sermon on the Plain, Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus taught, blessed are those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy and who cry out for forgiveness. Blessed are those who realize their poverty, who realize they've got debts they can't pay, and who cry out to have those debts canceled. And this is the good news, that God forgives our debts, that God cancels our sins. God pays our bills for us. And it's really important to understand, this forgiveness is really what sets the Christian faith apart from every other worldview, every other religion. You know, you can, you can talk about certain things that, that various religions have in common, but this is something that is utterly unique to the Christian faith, forgiveness. The forgiveness of our sins. Secularists, think about secularists today. Secularists believe in moral relativism. And because they are moral relativists, they will tell you, you don't need forgiveness. In fact, they will tell you to ignore and suppress your feelings of guilt. Your feelings of guilt are a social construct. You have been conditioned to feel guilty by your parents who certainly oppressed you when you were growing up, maybe even tried to impose religion on you. 
ignore that? Or you have been made to feel guilty by society that has imposed its expectations upon you, but your guilt is nothing more than a social construct. You don't actually need forgiveness. That's the secular way of looking at it. Of course, if there's no forgiveness, there's no good news. Psychologists will sometimes tell you that your greatest need is to forgive yourself. You really just need to forgive yourself. You have sinned against no one except yourself. You've, you've sinned against you and you only. And so don't be too hard on yourself. Lighten up. Uh, just tell yourself again and again how great you are. Pump up your self-esteem. That will make your guilt feelings go away. But there's no good news in that either. There's nothing liberating in that. You actually can't, can't make guilt go away just with self-esteem. <laughs> Simon's got good self-esteem, but look at him in this story and how he treats people. That's not what we want. In fact, that's another way. Pharisaism. What does Pharisaism do? Pharisaism doesn't offer forgiveness either. This is religion without Christ. Pharisees will say, yes, there is a law outside of ourselves to be kept, but then the Pharisee will say, I have kept that law. I am a good person. I'm not like those sinners over there. And then they lump all the people they don't like into that category. I'm not like those sinners over there. I can pay my own way. I don't want anything unless I can earn it myself. I'm a good person. I'm a righteous person. And of course, this view is delusional. Completely lacking in self-awareness and self-knowledge. The real cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge. It's knowing yourself. It's understanding who you are because you can't really know yourself without seeing yourself as a sinner. But the Pharisee is deluded. He's deluded about the scope and requirements of God's law and he's deluded about his ability to meet those requirements. But it's not just that. The Pharisee refuses to see his own sins, but he certainly sees the sins of others. This is the mark of a Pharisee. He goes easy on himself and hard on other people. He doesn't see his own need for forgiveness, and so he will not and cannot readily extend forgiveness to others. The Pharisee excludes his enemy from the category of humanity, even as he excludes himself from the category of sinners. I'm human, I'm a good person, you're a sinner, you're subhuman. That's how a Pharisee thinks about the world. That's what Simon does here. He deifies himself into the righteous one and he dehumanizes the woman into a worthless sinner. Because Simon won't see his own sin, not only does that have deep implications for his relationship with Jesus, it's got deep implications for his relationship with everybody else. And you really see this if you look at what happens in the aftermath of the parable. Jesus speaks to Simon to drive his point home. He says to Simon, you see this woman. Stop right there with that question. You see this woman. Jesus is so wise, infinitely wise, obviously, but you see it here in this question. What a beautiful and compelling way to frame this. Do you see this woman? Simon, do you really see her? Now, of course, Simon sees her in a sense. In a sense, he sees her because he's condemned her in his heart. He is scandalized by her presence in his home. He is angered by how she has served Jesus. He is angered by how Jesus has received her service. But Simon doesn't really see this woman. All he sees is sin. 
All he sees is a sinner, a repulsive, disgusting sinner. He doesn't see a woman made in the image of God. He doesn't see an image bearer, somebody with inherent worth and value and dignity. She's just a sinner to him. That's the only category he can use to describe her. And so he dehumanizes her. He sees her filth, not her humanity. He sees a notorious prostitute, a woman of the streets, a woman of the city, not a woman made in the image and likeness of God and therefore worthy of love and respect and care and kindness. His pride has blinded him to his own sin, but therefore his pride has blinded him to seeing her as she is, to seeing her as a person. Do you see this woman? No doubt we all have people in our lives we struggle to see. We only see them for their wrongdoing, for their sins, maybe for their political views we disagree with or some way they've, they've harmed us. That's all we can see about them. That's the only thing that shows up when we see that person is their sin, their filth, their wretchedness. Again, Simon's pride blinded him to seeing himself as a fellow sinner along with her. He can see her as a debtor, but not himself. He won't see himself as a debtor. And so in his smugness, in his self-righteousness, the way he has put himself on a pedestal, he looks down on her, he despises her. He has no compassion, no love, no mercy for this broken, humiliated woman. And so while Simon can answer Jesus' question about the parable, he still misses the point. What's the point Jesus is driving at? The point of the parable was to teach Simon that both he and the woman are sinners, that they're both debtors, that they're both in the same sinking boat. The point is not that all sins are equal. That's not true. It's not true. Some sins are bigger than others. That's not the point of the parable. The point is not that everyone is equally sinful. That's not true either. Some people really are worse sinners than others. Some people are bigger sinners than others. The point is this. No sinner can pay his debt. Whatever his debt is, no sinner can pay what he owes. No sinner can pay his own way. Every sinner is bankrupt. But here's the thing, and this is what makes all the difference. The woman knows that about herself. She knows she's a debtor who cannot pay. And that's why she's coming to Jesus She's coming to Jesus to declare spiritual bankruptcy. She knows her only hope is forgiveness. But Simon does not know that about himself. There are some people who do not know anything about their personal finances. They don't know anything about their financial condition. That's a terrible place to be. There are people out there who owe lots of money and they don't know it. They've got financial debts, but they couldn't tell you their bank balance. They are ignorant of their financial standing. That's not a good place to be, to not know your financial condition. But that is how Simon is spiritually. He thinks he's in the black. In reality, he's deeply in the red. He will not acknowledge that he is a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his wrath and without hope apart from God's sovereign mercy. He would not be able to affirm that first membership vow that we take. And therein lies the problem for Simon. See, the issue here again is not how much each one owes. The issue is who thinks they can pay their own way and who knows that they can't. 
She knows she's a sinner in need of a savior. He doesn't. She worships Jesus. He doesn't. She washed his feet. Simon wouldn't do that. She serves. He doesn't. She repents of her sin. He won't. She humbles himself. He remains prideful. She sees. He doesn't. He's blind. She loves. He hates. Jesus asked him, do you see this woman? And do you see yourself? In her, in the same condition, in the same boat she's in. In other words, Jesus says to Simon, will you learn from her? Will you, the great lofty teacher of Israel, will you, the Pharisee, will you humble yourself to learn from this woman? Simon, will you, the teacher of Israel, learn from a harlot? Will you take theology lessons from a whore? That's really the question, because the whore has become the teacher. The woman of the streets has become the theologian. Simon wouldn't learn from the whore. He wouldn't humble himself to learn from the harlot. But the question for each of us is, will you? Will you learn from her? She gets it. Simon doesn't. What about you? Do you see the magnitude of your debt? Do you see your utter dependence upon the grace and mercy of God? Have you ever shed a tear over your own sin? Has your heart ever been broken over how you've broken God's law? Do you know with David in Psalm 51 that the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart? Do you know that? Have you had a broken spirit and a contrite heart? See, Simon here judges the sinner. He says in his heart, I'm glad I'm not like her. He will not see himself as a fellow sinner, as a fellow debtor. She will acknowledge that about herself. It's true. She has lived a life of disgusting immorality. She has lived a life of wretchedness. But again, this is the truth we have to see here. Whether we owe more than this woman or less than this woman, the reality is we all owe a debt we cannot pay. That is the point. Simon wouldn't see his need for Jesus, and so he didn't love Jesus. He wouldn't give water for Jesus' feet. He wouldn't uh, greet Jesus with a kiss. He wouldn't anoint Jesus. Everything Simon should have done, this woman does. Everything this woman does is really what Simon should have done for Jesus. Jesus even sets up this series of contrasts between them, really to say, look, she's not only become the teacher instead of you, Simon, she's become the host. She's the one who has welcomed me. She's the one who welcomes Jesus in. She wasn't in, even invited as a guest to this party. She's crashed this party, but this party crasher has really become the hostess because of the way she has welcomed Jesus, again, showing up Simon and exposing Simon's pride and his lack of love and his lack of self-knowledge. Verse 47, we come to Jesus' conclusion. Therefore, I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Notice several things here. One is that Jesus affirms she is a great sinner. Jesus affirms this woman is a great sinner. This woman may well have been a victim in various ways. Most women who end up in the line of work she was in are victims in 
one way or another. They have been sinned against in some way. We can acknowledge that. But nevertheless, Jesus regards her as a sinner and even a great sinner. She is responsible for the ways she has misused her body, misused her sexuality, for the ways that she has sinned against God. Jesus holds her accountable for what she's done. She's not merely a victim. She has committed many sins. This woman is a sinner. But in coming to Jesus... She has found forgiveness. Her many debts have been canceled. But here's the thing we need to see about canceled debts. When a debt gets canceled, it doesn't just go away. The debt gets passed on to somebody else. It has to be paid by someone else. So who pays here? Who can pay our debts for us? How will this woman's many debts be paid? How will your debts and my debts be paid? We're kind of getting a little taste of this in our culture right now with all the debates over student loan forgiveness. And everyone who has any economic sense at all knows that if the debt for college loans gets forgiven, it doesn't just go away, it doesn't magically disappear, it actually just shifts somewhere else within the system. And in this case, it seems it likely is going to land on the American taxpayer. And so people have pointed out, hey, how can this possibly be fair? How can this be just? What's going to happen is you're going to have truck drivers and carpenters who will end up paying for other people to go get their master's degree in gender studies or something like that. And anyone, again, with even the slightest bit of economic sense knows that's just not right. That's not justice. You can't just cancel the debts and have them magically disappear they go somewhere else. They get shifted somewhere else in the system. Well, what about here? How does this debt cancellation work? Is this debt cancellation just? Can God be the God of justice and the one who forgives our debts? Well, the answer is yes. God cancels our debts. He cancels the debt of our sin. How does that get handled? Who pays? Where does that debt go? Well, this parable doesn't answer that question. This parable is not designed to answer all the questions. But by the time you get to the end of Luke's gospel, that question sure gets answered. Every gospel is driving at this, the answer to this question. How are the debts going to be canceled? Jesus has gone around forgiving people's sin. How does that happen? The sin doesn't just go away. Where does it end up? Well, it ends up on Jesus. Jesus covers our debts by paying them himself on the cross. Jesus has united himself to us. He has become one of us. He's entered into our humanity and our history so he can be our sin bearer. On the cross, Jesus pays what we owe. He takes the receipt of our debts, that legal record of what we owe, and in his blood, he writes on that receipt, paid in full. He stamps it right there, paid in full. He cancels our debt by paying that debt with his own life, with his own blood on the cross. And that's why he can say here to the woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Those are the sweetest words you could ever hope to hear. Those words, your sins are forgiven. That's like a man dying of thirst who finally gets to quench that thirst. You know, his, his throat's parched, it's parched. He finally quenches his thirst with a drink of cool water. That's what it's like for this woman to hear those words. She's been longing to hear those words. These are the best words you could ever hope to hear. Your sins are forgiven. Your debts are canceled. It's a declaration of absolution. Quite honestly, just like what we have in our liturgy every week. 
take heart, your sins are forgiven. We, we have a declaration of absolution, a declaration of forgiveness every Sunday. This forgiveness means this woman has a new status. He has declared her righteous. She is justified, as the Apostle Paul would say. And this sinner being justified, it is just. God is justifier and the ju he's just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus because Jesus took the punishment our sins deserve. He bore the wrath due to us for our sins on the cross. Here in Luke chapter 7, the people marvel at this. The other dinner guests gathered around at the table. They say, who is this who forgives sins? They're amazed by this. See, to forgive sins, everybody knows it would take more than a mere prophet. Everybody knew God alone could forgive sins. And in Old Covenant Israel, if you wanted your sins forgiven, you would go to the temple because that's where God is. That's where the sin offering is made. It's at the temple. And here Jesus is going around handing out temple blessings, handing out what the sin offering is supposed to do wherever he goes, handing out forgiveness of sins to those who come to him. Ultimately, this is going to be what gets Jesus in trouble. They grumble when he eats and drinks with sinners, but when he forgives sinners, well, that's just going too far. They've got to kill him for that. They see it as blasphemy. Of course, ironically, by killing Jesus because he announced the forgiveness of sins, they actually bring about the forgiveness that Jesus promised. So how is that? God is just and the justifier of sinners who have faith in Jesus. But that's not all. So somebody could hear this. Oh, wonderful. Jesus cancels debts. Jesus is in the business of forgiving sinners. So doesn't that mean I can just keep on living however I want and I'll never owe anything? Then I'm free to go do whatever I want. She could have continued on as a prostitute, right? And, and no consequence because Jesus would cover her sins. No. A thousand times, no. As Paul says at the beginning of Romans 6, when he deals with this very question, may it never be. And we see here in this story why it can't be that way. Those whose debts are forgiven love the one who forgave them. If you see your debt and you see how Jesus has paid it, you will be compelled to love Jesus in the way this woman does. And that's part of Jesus' teaching here as well. He doesn't say she got her sins forgiven because she loved him. But her love for Jesus was a sign that, yes, he is forgiving her debt. That's how it works. It's not just that Jesus forgives her debt even. You see here, he also transforms her. You see that here. He transforms her loves. Her loves are transformed. She makes a break with her old way of life. And so now what's happened to this woman? This woman who was entrenched in this very sinful way of life, what do we see now? She has new loves. New desires, new obedience. Now she's going to live for Jesus. This is going to be the man she serves. She's going to trust him and love him. The surest sign that your sins are forgiven is that you love the forgiver. That's what we see here. Simon has no love for Jesus. He doesn't see his need for forgiveness, so he doesn't see his need for Jesus, so he has no love for Jesus. There's no transformation going on in Simon's life. He's stuck right where he is. But this woman knows she's had a huge debt canceled. And so now she loves the one who canceled it. She is full of love and gratitude. She's been forgiven much. And so she loves much. And because she loves much, she obeys much. She is a new person. She's a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
I think Jesus even acknowledges this in verse 50 when he tells her, your faith has saved you, go in peace. See, faith, we know how key faith is. She's trusting in Jesus for these blessings. And here Jesus uses the category of salvation, not just forgiveness, but now it's salvation. Salvation includes forgiveness, but it's more than that. By faith, she is saved. The word for salvation actually describes health and wholeness. What this means is by faith, she has been united to Jesus. And as she is united to Jesus, she is transformed. She is healed. She's in the process of being transformed. Again, she's a new person. She's a new creation. Her faith has set her free so she can go in peace. She's no longer at war with God. She's no longer at war with God as she was in her previous way of life. Now she's at war with her sin. That's why she can go in peace. God's no longer at war with her. She's been forgiven. Her debts have been canceled. She's now on God's side. She lives in peace with God from this day forward. She lives in a new way. See, Simon's table didn't have room for sinners. He couldn't see himself as a sinner, therefore he couldn't be forgiven. But Jesus' table always has room for sinners. He's always ready to eat and drink with sinners who come to him. He's going to eat and drink with sinners here today. Isn't that good news? And indeed, at this communion table, we find Jesus is not only the host who feeds us, he himself is also the feast. We eat with him and we feast upon him by faith so that who he is and all his benefits become ours at the table. What a beautiful thing. There are two truths then to take away from this story. I said this was back to basics. It is. It doesn't get any more basic than this. Two truths to take away from this story. First, Jesus accepts you just as you are. It does not matter what you have done. Jesus can cancel your debts. Even if you owe a hundred zillion dollars, come to him. He'll cover it. He'll cancel your debts. It does not matter what you've done. Jesus will accept you just as you are. Turn to him. Throw yourself on his mercy. Fall before him in your brokenness. Jesus accepts you just as you are. You know that old Baptist hymn, Just As I Am? Okay, well, that hymn gets it right. Jesus will accept you just as you are. That's the first truth. But here's the second truth. While Jesus accepts you just as you are, he will not let you stay that way. Because Jesus not only forgives your sins and cancels your debts, he also gets to work healing you. His salvation is comprehensive. John Donne, the great poet, once said, I do not love a man except that I hate his vices because those vices are his enemies and will destroy him unless he is rescued from them. That's actually kind of a paraphrase of what Dunn said, but, but I love that. He says, I don't love a man unless I hate his vices because those vices will destroy him. And if I love him, I don't want him destroyed. You can think of all kinds of ways that would apply in your life. You do that with your kids. You discipline your kids to drive out their vices because you love them. And you know, if you don't drive out the vices, those vices will destroy them. That's why you discipline your children. This is why we talk to people about their sin, not because we're trying to be judgmental or want to put people off. It's because we really do love people, and if you love people, you're going to hate what would destroy them. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus loves us, and so he hates what would 
destroy us. He doesn't leave us in our sins. He doesn't forgive us and then leave us unchanged. With his forgiveness comes the reality of a changed life. Salvation includes both, a new status and new loves, a new standing and a new heart. It's interesting to think about this story, and I've, I've seen this story misused. You know, in, a, in an overly tolerant, relativistic, antinomian, anti-law age like ours, People will sometimes take a story like this and try to use a story like this to say, how you live, it just doesn't matter. This has infected so much of the modern day church, it's certainly out there in the culture. They'll say, see, Jesus, Jesus forgives, he forgives debtors big and small. It doesn't matter how you live, even if you never repent of your sin or fight against your sin. It doesn't matter. It's going to be okay. Jesus is an easygoing tolerant, live and let live Messiah, no standards, no expectations, no demands, completely unconditional love. That's a message you'll hear. This story says no. It says no to all of that. It is true that Jesus is forgiving. And it is true that in the Gospels, Jesus spends a lot of time with sinners and tax collectors. But note this, Jesus doesn't just hang out with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus reaches out to them, and in reaching out to them, he not only offers to them forgiveness, he also demands their repentance, their transformation, their change, their renewal. He seeks to seek and save the lost, yes, but the lost have not been saved unless they've been rescued not only from the consequences of their sin, but from the power of sin reigning over them. Jesus not only brings us forgiveness, he also brings us transformation. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Yes, hallelujah. We sing that. We know that. Jesus is the friend of sinners. But Jesus is never and never will be the friend of sin. Friend of sinners, yes. Friend of sin, no. Jesus hates your sin. He hates your sin. He doesn't just see you as a sinner only. But he hates your sin, and he's seeking to rescue you from your sin. Jesus hates your sin the same way a doctor hates cancer. The doctor hates cancer because he loves the patient. And therefore, he despises the disease that would destroy the patient. And he may have to put the patient through all kinds of horrific things to save that patient. But that's what Jesus is going to do with us. He hates your sin, and he's going to save you from it. If you're like Simon and you have a small view of your own sin, you'll have a small view of God's grace, you'll have, a small, you'll have small loves as well, and you'll never really experience the joy and liberation and peace of the gospel. You won't condemn yourself, and so you cannot experience God's forgiveness. But if you see the real magnitude of your sin, if you see that your sin is a massive debt that you can't even pay the first penny on, if you see that sin, and if you see God's grace, God's grace manifested in the gospel of Jesus, if you see that God's grace is even bigger than your sin, well then, yes, the floodgates of joy and peace are going to open in your life by seeing you're a big sinner and seeing the even bigger grace of God. You're going to have big loves, big love for God, big love for others. If you know that you are a mess, 
but you don't let your mess keep you from Jesus. You come to Jesus anyway. You bring your mess to Jesus because you know he can clean you up. Then you can begin to experience the amazing grace of Jesus in your life. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the scandal that we are all sinners and we cannot even begin to pay our debts. The only one who can pay our debt is Jesus. This is what the gospel is all about. The gospel is all about saving sinners from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.